Welcome to the eighth episode of the 1796 Podcast, a monthly podcast that features exclusive interviews and in-depth news about the Tennessee National Guard and the Tennessee Military Department. The 1796 Podcast is produced every month by the Airmen and Soldiers of the Tennessee National Guard Joint Public Affairs Office. I'm Lieutenant Colonel Malone. And I'm Captain Hall, your co-hosts of the 1796 Podcast. It's November, and we have a special episode for Veterans Day. Lieutenant Colonel Malone sits down with World War II hero Captain Jerry Neal, who flew the B-24 bomber on D-Day and received the Distinguished Flying Cross for his service. We'll also hear from retired Brigadier General Tommy Baker, who now serves as Commissioner of Veterans Affairs for the state of Tennessee. And of course, we'll brief you on the latest news impacting the Tennessee National Guard in our Tennessee Bluff news segment. First up, Lieutenant Colonel Malone sits down with Captain Jerry Neal. Well, listeners of the 1796 podcast, we have a singular treat for you on this episode. We have with us Captain Retired Jerry Neal. Now, I don't want to give too much away, but Captain Neal is a recipient of the Distinguished Flying Cross and a veteran of World War II. Now, since this is November's episode of the podcast and November 11th is Veterans Day, we could not think of a better guest to have with us than Captain Neal. First off, Captain Neal, welcome to the 1796 podcast. Thank you. We are honored to have you. All right, first off, I have to address the elephant in the room. World War II ended in 1945. Well, this is 2022. That's 77 years. Do you mind telling us how old you are? Uh, I'm I'm working on 102. I'm 101. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. All right, how you feeling today? Feeling very good. That's awesome. We are thrilled to have you with us. First off... Since you're a veteran of World War II, what did you do in World War II? What was your job? My job was a B-24 and a B-17 pilot. I flew both planes in the 8th Air Force, flying over Germany Mm -hmm. during the the campaign in Germany. Awesome. All right. So tell me a little bit about how that started, your recruitment. You were probably drafted, right? So how did that work? How did you end up being a pilot, and what was your initial training like? How long do we have? (laughs) Well, ba- basically, <laughs> I was dra- was received my draft card and uh, did not want to be drafted because all I could remember was World War I mm-hmm. trench warfare. So I said, no, I don't want to go in the Army. Mm-hmm. And since I was in Kansas City, Missouri, and didn't see any water anywhere, I wasn't necessarily interested in the Navy. But um, long story short, um, I-, I took a test to be a glider pilot and ended up being recruited as an aviation cadet trainee for pilot training. Mm-hmm. Unknowns to me because I knew nothing of aircraft. The only thing I ever saw on an aircraft was the newsreels that may go to a movie maybe once a once a week, and mm-hmm. we'd see a air, newsreel with an aircraft in. Never saw any flying over fee, over the head. Mm-hmm. Never was on an airfield, and I thought it was very very strange that I'm being recruited to be a pilot. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it was an interesting experience. I went in uh, the aviation cadet program, and a year later, I received my commission and my aeronautical rating as a pilot. Mm-hmm. From there, I went to B-24 training up in uh, Idaho and trained as a B-24 pilot and went overseas movement orders. I went over as a B-24 pilot. We joined to with 490th Bomb Group in, in, in England, and... Then as a result of the things that happened on D-Day, went back to base. General Doolittle had changed over the tactics and changed 
the three divisions, two divisions B-17s, one division going to be 24 before they were mixed. So as a result, our group was changed toward B-17s, which I was very fortunate. Mm-hmm. Much better aircraft mm-hmm. for that particular high-altitude mission. Gotcha. 24 was not that good at high altitude. Gotcha. So that's, um, I completed 35 missions in. Perfect. So uh, so you said you were in the European theater, fly, yes. flying bomb missions over Germany. So what was a typical day like, or maybe even a typical mission? And maybe there's no such thing as typical in that environment. Typical day would we be, uh, uh, the orderly would come in at 2 o'clock in the morning and wake us up. We would go to, uh, to the officer's quarters to get our breakfast. Then there to the flight line to get our uniforms on. Then there to briefing and the general briefing to tell us what the mission was. Then we would be uh, trucked out to our, the flight line in our plane, wait for the, uh, the takeoffs, uh, and then we would start off in 30-second takeoffs. Uh, fly through, normally in England, we were flying through 15 to 20,000 feet of overcast. Uh, so we're flying instruments for two hours to mm-hmm. get to the rendezvous point, which was usually at twenty to 25,000 feet over England. Then the groups would get together into divisions, and the divisions would then join up, and, and then we would head out for Europe as the 8th Air Force. Awesome. Okay, so what was your most memorable mission? No question about it. My most memorable one was uh, June 6, 1944. Mm-hmm. We were went the traditional wake up, so forth, get ready. We went to briefing. And when the commanding officer, who incidentally we called the old man, <laughs> and he was 25 years old, mm-hmm. he got up on the stage and we pulled back the curtains and uh, there was Operation Overlord. We didn't know anything about it. We knew something was going to happen. We didn't know when or how or what we were going to take part. But we were going to be, our mission that day was to go to fly to Caen, France, and bomb the area in Caen to eliminate the Panzer divisions that were they thought was there. So as we crossed the English Channel, at, you know, the only, only mission I flew, I never had an oxygen mask on, so we were below 10,000 feet. Crossed the channel and looked up the channel, and I saw 7,000, 8,000 waterborne vessels, <laughs> battleships, cruisers, destroyers, and luxury ships. You know, English be going across toward the mm-hmm. beaches. Mm-hmm. Now, here I am, a young kid, just out of high school, basically, and I see something that's very few people mm-hmm. ever got to see. Sure. Was a whole invasion fleet going across the English Channel right. for, the, for the largest invasion in mankind at that time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so that was uh, awesome. So, so how did your mission turn out? What happened? Well, uh, we went over Con, and because of weather conditions were bad, uh, we couldn't bomb because we had an undercast. And mm-hmm. since we didn't have electronic bombing instruments, we had to do visual. So we couldn't do visual. Mm-hmm. So uh, the uh, commanding officer said after we circled the target, circled the circle, and he said, well, we got to go get back to base because we're running low on fuel. Well, we, I did learn. I ran out of fuel over the English Channel and went down mm-hmm. into the English Channel, flared out just before we hit the rock, a rock bar out in the middle of the mm-hmm. channel, mm-hmm. and survived. Right. That, yep. that was a very defining moment. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, thank you for that. That was thank a, you so that much. probably my, my most interesting one. Uh, I would yeah. think so, yeah. yes. 
awesome. And so what you flew 35 missions, right? Or 35 I, combat missions. Combat missions. Mm-hmm. And Count, we, counting missions. And I actually flew probably 70 to 100 missions right, right. to get those 35. <clears throat> those artificial lines that were drawn that mm-hmm. said you had to get in so far and meet enemy force. Mm-hmm. Then they would count it as a mission. And what, what number, whereabout was your D-Day? In the, in third, the third mission. Oh, right, right at the beginning. Right at the beginning. B-24. Mm-hmm. The mm-hmm. B-24 went down in. And when I went back to base, I switched over 17. So that was, I had uh, the B-24 I picked up. Uh, was brand new. I had consolidated in Lincoln, Nebraska, going over. That first mission, that was so shot up, it destroyed. So they they put that in the, what they called the boneyard. Got the, another B-24 that shot up so bad, they put it in the boneyard. And the third one, I went down in the English Channel. My goodness. So three missions, three B-24s, they were $250,000 a piece. Right. And they said I would be charged for it. <laughs> still still making payments, right? Still making payments, right. <laughs> well, thank you for that. Thanks for telling that story. I appreciate it very much. So you transitioned, after the war, you transitioned to civilian life, and you were in the Air Force Reserve for a while. I Is was. that right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what civilian career did you go into? Well, I went to work for Honeywell. And uh, went into sales and worked up through the channels and uh, ended up being an area manager for Honeywell. And what does Honeywell do? They manufacture controls. Mm-hmm. Incidentally, one of the, the automatic pilot on a B-17 was manufactured by Honeywell. Gotcha. My first, uh, when I saw Honeywell on that, that's the first I knew anything about Honeywell. Mm-hmm. But it was a good autopilot. And how long were you with them? Uh, 36 years. Gotcha. Yeah. Awesome. And you retired from there and... Went from there, I went into uh, uh, my individual business. I had a distributorship and grew that business and sold it. And uh, Cam and I took over a uh, industry newspaper. I ran that for a while after I sold the business and ended up being a member of a counselor for SCORE. Right. And that, uh, so Cam is your wife. Cam is my wife right, right yeah. here. And she's here with you today, yes. And SCORE, what is, what, tell us what SCORE that is. SCORE was uh, started by DuPont after World War I. It was an indi- a group of uh, independent in- businessmen, successful businessmen, that banded together for the purpose of uh, helping people that were in businesses or wanted to get into business and were having trouble mm-hmm. so that we could be a, you know, we could f- furnish the background of information and experience that we had to people who had had experience and problems such as um, not even having a business plan and helping them to b- build business plans and that type of thing so like a mentor for entrepreneurs we were mentors yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. so that leads right into my next question so how did your military service help your civilian career and your life in, in in general what what was maybe the most useful thing you learned in the military that transitioned discipline yeah that was the main thing mm-hmm. And actually, interesting enough, I was in ROTC program in high school, three years, which I really loved. Mm-hmm. I wish they had more of it today for young people. So when I was in the aviation cadet program, they made me a, a, a cadet officer based on the fact that I was in a ROTC program in right. high school. So I had a, a, a discipline and I had responsibilities of personnel right off the bat. So that's... That experience that I had there just served me so well in my business life. Excellent. The discipline. Mm-hmm. Got it. All right. Mm-hmm. So that kind of leads to my next question, actually. So you like, I, I know that you like to tell your story 
and, and relay your life lessons to the younger generation. Yes. I know you get to do, do that often. I do. And, and so what do they need to know, and what do they need to hear from someone who's been through what you've been through? Well, I, it, my hope is that I can reinforce the fact that they need to know the history of our country and the sacrifices that have been made over the years and many wars and many events to keep our country where we, it is today. And if we don't know that, we're going to make the same mistakes over and over again, hopefully by being making them more and more aware of how many people have sacrificed themselves mm -hmm. to give us the, the freedom that we have today. It's important. And freedom is not free. Well, hopefully we're getting a little bit of that word out yeah. with this podcast. So that's great. Thank you so much. So um, what, you, again, you're a veteran, and there's lots of vets out there, and hopefully you have some vets listening. What, what do you think is still needed to help vets today, and uh, how do you think the system is doing in help, helping vets? Is there something they could do better? Cam and I both feel like we support veterans' organizations mm -hmm. as much as we can gotcha. in a way of substance, you know, money, any kind of support mm -hmm. that we can provide. Right. Because there's a lot of veterans out there that need help, and it's obvious, you know, mm -hmm. they're suffering. Right. So we feel for those people, and mm -hmm. whatever we can do to help, that's important to us at this point. Great. But what I'm concerned about is the the pool that's available to go into an armed force in the case of a mm -hmm. World War Because I I think that the Depression years that we that I grew up in and the fellows that went in with me the young men and we were hardened by the depression years. Mm -hmm. We were tough mm -hmm. We didn't necessarily know it, but we could stand a lot of tough stuff mm -hmm. And I'm afraid we've got a lot of people that are soft mm -hmm. today mm -hmm. and don't have that desire or the Or the interest in supporting our country. Sure. That's a concern. I hope I'm wrong, but it's sure. my concern Sure. Maybe we'll have a recruiting episode on a future, future That'd podcast nice. and talk That'd about that. That'd be nice, yeah. yeah. You told us your most memorable mission. Do you have a fondest memory of your time in uniform that might be different? Actually, I, I enjoyed I, the, the year that I spent in pilot training. I enjoyed flying. That was really, really, I really found out I was a good pilot, and I enjoyed it. But combat took all the joy out of flying sure I just never really had a desire to fly much after you know to be a to get my own private plane and to fly even if I could afford it I didn't have that desire to do it because I didn't have that interest mm -hmm. I still don't I get I've been invited by people and go up in their private planes and not particularly interesting to me but boy going through that year of training I loved it Flying through clouds, flying upside down, air to I mean, you know, all the stuff I did individually, I, I thought was good. And yeah. flying from from uh, starting with a little uh, open cockpit, uh, single wing, 175 horsepower aircraft to a B-24, which was, to me then was as big as a house. Mm -hmm. uh, what a what a transition in in a relatively few months for a guy, to, a young kid, just out of high school. Mm -hmm. Basically, I'm still yeah. wet behind the ears <laughs> to get go through that uh -huh. uh, that training. It was awesome training. Right, you right. Know, did a beautiful job. And and to I think I've heard you tell the story in the past. To to get to Europe, you you started in the U.S. and what we, that, that must we have went, been a good flight too, since it was before combat. What was it that? was a southern. We went the southern route because when we were 
moving over, it was winter time, and the northern route at the time was closed mm -hmm. because of weather conditions. Sure. So we flew from um, our base in Mountain Home, which is outside of Boise, mm -hmm. up in Idaho, across the mountains to um, Lincoln, Nebraska. Lincoln, Nebraska picked up the new B-24. The old one with training was, would never have made it. Mm -hmm. Got the new and went there from to... Uh, so a brand new B-24. Three brand new okay. with the little notes in the corners with the, the, the gals that are, you know, good luck, guys, you know, so oh, wow. and so forth. I mean, that was, mm -hmm. we'd pick those things out. So that for West Palm, uh, there from Puerto Rico, Puerto Rico to uh, Belém, which is right off the Amazon River, hacked out of the jungle to uh, Fortaleza, Brazil, jumped across the South Atlantic, a huge jump, mm -hmm. just uh, navigation was a sextant, that's all we had, mm -hmm. to Dakar, North Africa, Dakar to uh, to Marrakesh, which is pretty close to Casablanca, across the, Atlas, across the Sahara, across the Atlas Mountains, stuff I just read about in, hist in uh, geography books and history books, here I, I'm, I'm seeing it. See, Amazon River took us 20 minutes to fly across the mouth of the Amazon River. That's huge uh -huh. at the time. And there went from uh, Marrakesh to uh, England and across to East England to our base. Awesome. Ten days. Right. Ten-day route. And hmm. uh, very, very interesting. No <laughs> doubt. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Well, thank you so much again for being here with us. I've got one final question. And this is a tradition when we have a... I often say when we have a seasoned person on our on our podcast, guy. I think you qualify. <laughs> what is your best piece of advice for the for the young people and anybody out there that's listening? Love your country, know your country, know what's going on, be involved. Well, Captain Neil, thank you so much for being on the 1796 podcast. We really appreciate you, your service, and your time today. Thank you very much, Colonel. Thank you, sir. Up first this month in the Tennessee Bluff. November is the month of the military family for the Tennessee National Guard. All month long, we'll be featuring soldiers and airmen, along with their families, on our social media platforms as a tribute to their service. And in other news, the Tennessee National Guard responded to a 70-acre wildfire in Warren County in late October. At the request of the Tennessee Emergency Management Agency, the Tennessee National Guard has provided two UH-60 Blackhawk helicopters to support the wildfire response. The aircraft will make multiple trips into the affected area, dropping hundreds of gallons of water from the air. Bambi buckets are a specialized bucket system that is utilized by the UH-60 that are suspended from a helicopter to deliver water for aerial firefighting. And in national news, veterans and military retirees will receive a sizable cost of living adjustment next year the same 8.7% cost of living increase as Social Security recipients. It is the highest increase in 42 years as Americans deal with the impact of record high inflation. Individuals who are currently serving, along with federal employees, are also expected to receive a pay increase in 2023, an estimated increase of 4.6%. Every October, the Social Security Administration announces the cost of living adjustment for the following year. Veterans and military retirees receive the same Social Security cost of living adjustment by law. That's our Tennessee Bluff for this month. Up next, the 1796 Podcast sits down with Commissioner Tommy Baker. 
Listeners of the 1796 Podcast, we have another special guest with us today. I am honored to be joined today by Major General Retired Tommy Baker. General Baker is Tennessee's current Commissioner of Veteran Services and the former Deputy Adjutant General of the Tennessee National Guard. First off, welcome to the 1796 Podcast. Hey, thanks for having me, Marty. We are honored, sir. Thank you so much. First off, tell us a little bit about your journey into and through the National Guard and how you came to be Tennessee's commissioner for the Department of Veteran Services. Okay. Um, so I think my journey is, is probably very representative of what you find in today's all-volunteer force. I joined in 1980 in the Tennessee National Guard there in a local unit, Huntington, Tennessee. Calf Troop, by the way, 19 Delta is what I started out mm-hmm. as. You know, I didn't grow up with really aspirations of joining the military other than I had a grandfather who was a World War II veteran. Spent a lot of time at his house asking a lot of questions as a young man. I guess, you know, listening to his stories about World War II, his dad had been a World War I veteran, but I never had met him. My grandmother even said later he was telling me things that he had never even talked to her about. So I guess in, a, in one way, he had a very strong impression upon my life. As a boy, Watching the evening news in the late 60s and early 70s, a lot of coverage of Vietnam, our guys over there, and when they would return home, I would see them in the hometown. And and then um, in 1971, we had a, a massive F-4 tornado that came through our town. The National Guard responded to that, and I seen them out responding as a, as a boy, and I really didn't understand it what their role was in terms of domestic operations, but obviously that was a foretelling of some of my what I would do in my adult life. So anyway, joined in 1980, uh, was still working with my dad in the logging business that he had started. Really was a part-timer until 2001. Got a chance to come up and go to work at the state maintenance office in April of that year. In September of that year, 9-11 occurred, and that really... I said, you know, a lot of times my career was 20 years of Cold War and then 20 years of post-9-11 because it really changed that much. And, um, of course, 2004 we deployed with the 230th Air Support Group. 2008 I went back as the commander of the uh, 30th Combat Sustainment Support Battalion. We were in northern Iraq that time. Got home in 2009 and then became the deputy G4 of the G4 Army ATAG and then the deputy adjutant general uh, was my last assignment. Of course, as you know, I got to retire 30 September 2021, uh, almost 41 years of service, and got to come uh, lead uh, veteran services as a commissioner. And I didn't, I came down in December of 2020, I thought on an interim basis got down here, really learned the mission of the organization, what they were able to do to help veterans. Thought, you know, I've been I've been kind of praying about what was next in life. It kind of became apparent to me that this was my transition piece. This was what was going to allow me to go into that next phase of life. And so that's how I became the Veteran Services Commissioner. Perfect. And that leads perfectly into my next question. What veteran services a lot of us are familiar with veterans administration which is Mm -hmm. a federal entity a lot of us are not as familiar with tennessee's department of veteran services so what's the difference and and what does veteran services do differently so one thing is just size the veterans the va is made up of really three main branches 
Veterans Healthcare Association, Veterans Benefits Administration, and then National Cemetery Administration. Out of those three branches, you've got all, about 425,000 employees nationwide, vast bureaucracy. Tennessee Department of Veterans Services is, is right opposite of that. There's only 111 employees statewide. So we do follow what the VA does in terms of the rules and their procedures and their guidelines because they're the ones that determine that. We don't get to. Why we call ourselves Veteran Services is because we are a state agency and, and we never want to become that massive bureaucracy that loses touch with the average Tennessee veteran. And that's why we're here. We're, help, we're here to help them navigate that vast bureaucracy uh, that can sometimes be very overwhelming if you're not used to what you're looking at and how you're trying to approach or get a claim filed or, or you know, get pre-burial registration, just all the, the, you know, benefits that veterans have already earned in their family. It sometimes can be rather complex trying to, you know, attain those benefits. And that's where we come into play. All right. So what it's called veteran services. So what are some of the services? Are there any more that are a little more specific or more particular than just aiding with those so, benefits? Yeah. So we really have four core statutory by legislation uh, duties that were to perform for veterans. One of those is to run the state veterans cemeteries. So we, ha we have five of those across the state. We have two in Knox County. We have one here in Davidson County. We have our newest one in Parker's Crossroads at exit 108 on I-40. And then our other veterans, state veterans cemeteries in Memphis. The other thing we do is we provide appeal advocacy uh, for veterans when their appeals are denied first time through or their claims, they can come back to us and we will take that claim and we will appeal it on their behalf and provide oral advocacy on that veteran's behalf with the Board of Veterans Appeals, who will basically is an administrative law judge that will hear that case. And that's a great benefit for our veterans because not only is the claim and the appeal free, we also have an agency called the National Veterans Legal Service Program, who is a pro bono attorney group that represents veterans nationwide that we have a partnership with that allows us to, if they are denied at the Board of Veteran Appeals, we can use the National Veterans Legal Service Program to look at their case and go advocate at the Court of Veterans Claims. It's the highest level you can go, uh, and it requires an attorney to actually advocate and, and argue on your behalf. So that's another pro bono free benefit for veterans out there. The other thing we do down at Appeals, we provide annual accreditation for all the county service officers across the state. There's about 155, 160 county service officers. Many veterans know who their county service officer are. Uh, we provide annual accreditation training. The VA requires that they be accredited before they can represent a veteran on behalf of a claim. So we provide that training annually. And then the final thing we do is we have a team that conducts initial claims and they're in 11 field offices across the state you can walk in sit down get an appointment uh, they'll sit there and work your claim for you uh, you know get all the paperwork together for you send it in file it on your behalf follow up basically take your hand and hold it mm -hmm. in, through the entire process all right. and so that's really the four main things we do in the state so to boil it down advocacy and assistance for those benefits you've earned 
That's exactly what we do. I mean, we advocate on behalf of veterans and their families. What a great resource to all those Tennessee veterans. That's awesome. So how has your time in uniform maybe benefited aiding you in being the Commissioner of Veteran Services? There's no doubt. I think that was one of the things that I was most excited about when I came over here was understanding, yes, I get to help veterans and their families, which was a, a big positive for me, but also realizing, okay, you're leaving the uniform, you're taking off the boots, but you're going to be hanging around and working with people that's essentially the same culture that you've been in your whole life. That was very reassuring. I think a lot of veterans, when they transition into civilian life, uh, they and I've had many veterans tell me this, is they, they begin to miss that camaraderie that they had when they served. I don't think you can replicate that in the civilian world. And those are just bonds that uh, you don't build everywhere in life and I think being able to be in that culture most of my life has really given me an appreciation for being able to to do this job. Absolutely. So in private citizens, they often want to be helpful to veterans. Maybe they haven't worn the uniform. What are ways you recommend that they may be able to assist veterans? Well, you know, that's a great point and I I think it's probably, that's one of the, I believe, the most positive things I've seen in my two years here so many people in this state want to help veterans many of them have never wore the uniform but yet they're just looking for ways to help but i would say to be most effective just take a look around most of our areas in the state have veteran coalitions they're made up of private citizens vfws american legion uh, dav you name it Mm -hmm. and that's what they come together to do that's one way to plug in to where if you're really that person that wants to help you can really go and be a big blessing to veterans and their families because of that that is just an opportunity there that uh, will present itself if you just make yourself uh, known to the community that, that that's uh, serving that area. I, I think those of us in uniform have definitely seen it, that we live in one of the most patriotic states, no doubt about it. Well, we are heading into Veterans Day on November 11th. Why do you think it's important to honor veterans with something like Veterans Day? Whether you served in World War II, Cold War, Vietnam, or whether you're OIF, OEF, or whether whether you hadn't served during a, during a combat period, it's a chance for us to celebrate that service and to tell veterans, we thank you for doing that. And they put the uniform on, sign a blank check, mm-hmm. made payable to the American people. And it's uh, sobering when you raise your right hand and say, you know, when you swear the oath of office, I think it's something that we should celebrate, have the parades and have the events. And and I think veterans should be in schools all across this nation, this state, telling their story to those sixth graders, seventh graders. That's what impressed me as a young kid, was hearing those stories. I think uh, our children today needs to to hear those things. And um, so I, I encourage them not only to have the events Veterans Day, but to get out there and get in the community and tell their story. All the time. All the time. Yeah. So speaking of stories, do you have a fondest memory of your time in uniform? You know, that's hard. 41 years. I, I don't know, Marty. That's that's really hard to say one fondest sure. memory. I, I just, I, I think my last deployment, when I got back home, we, we went over, we had 84 folks in our battalion headquarters and had at one time about 1,800 uh, people mm-hmm. in our uh, battalion up in northern Iraq. Mm-hmm. Our, our mission was to provide logistics for that whole area. So we had convoys. Uh, going in and out every day 
we had security forces that were out there providing security force uh, that were under our command. And, you know, I remember thinking if I could just somehow if we could avoid losing anybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and we were able to. We got we had some folks get banged up. We had some folks get hurt. And we didn't lose anybody to the enemy. In that. And, and, you know, I was just coming home thinking about that that day on that bus ride when we got off the plane. And I was thinking, you know, that's just that was the one thing I wanted out of, out of that entire year. I think that was my proudest moment. Well, we like to ask and we like to conclude our interviews when we're talking to a, a seasoned person of the National Guard and of the military in any, any walk of life. What's your best piece of advice or your mm-hmm. best piece of leadership advice to us? I think what you have to really realize is, is whether you do four years or you do 40 years, that time really gets by quick. You know, you take the uniform off, you just take it off. I think I had some emotions about that, but I really think you should just cherish that time. You can't go back and redo it. Give it the best you got. I mean, you know, go as far as your merit and good fortune will take you uh, because, you're, you know, you, when you take it off, it, it you take it off. And, and it don't end there. You can still serve uh, in a lot of other ways, and I think you should, but... Uh, you know, it, it gets by quick, so enjoy it, cherish it, and, and you know, I heard, I heard one senior officer say as they were going out is is make you some good memories uh, because, you know, as you get older, you're going to sit, sit on the front porch and think about those things and some of the people you've served with, and it gets by quick. But that's be, that would be my advice. Enjoy your time. Yes, sir. Well, General Raker, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for the information about veteran services, and thank you for your advice to all of us. We appreciate it. Hey, thank you all. Thank you for continuing to serve, wear the uniform, and um, and take care of the rest of us. It's, it's good to see you, and uh, it's good to, to know that uh, we still have men and women that are willing to put it all at rest for all the rest of us. Yes, sir. Thank, thank you. you. Yes, sir. Thanks for listening to the 1796 Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing, sharing this episode with friends, and giving us a five-star review. Special thanks to Bradley Gray, who composed, performed, and recorded the new music for the 1796 Podcast. This podcast is produced by the Tennessee National Guard Joint Public Affairs Office. For more information, please visit www.tn.gov backslash military.